This episode of the History Files is brought to you by Audible. Visit audibletrial.com/historyfiles to start your free trial membership. Many, many years ago. Building of human rights. The guns at Malta evoke again the echo. In June 1948, all road and rail communication. Some things just aren't easy to explain. The History Files. We bring history to you. Welcome to episode 56 of the History Files for the third week of June 2016. We're excited this week to have Dr. Morgan Blanchard back for a good chat. You're, you may remember him from episode number 13, where we talked about archaeology in the western United States. Today we're going to have some fun talking about a subject near and dear to Dr. Blanchard's heart. One of the uh, earliest and most successful automobiles in history, the Ford Model T. But before we jump into that, let's take a poke at a few newsworthy items. June 6, 1523. Gustav I, later known as Gustav Vasa, ascends the throne of Sweden. Leader of the rebel movement following the Stockholm bloodbath, his election to the throne heralded the end of the Swedish elective monarchy and the start of a hereditary monarchy which continues to this day. June 15, 1915, Harold T. Burney becomes the first New York City resident given an engineer's certificate, also known as a driver's license. Yes, everybody who'd been driving around before this was doing so with no oversight whatsoever. It must have been chaos, especially since the first traffic signals were still a few years out. June 11, 1859, the Comstock Lode, a massive silver ore deposit, is discovered under Mount Davidson in what is in what is today Nevada. It was the western Utah Territory back then. The news set off a silver rush, the biggest kerfuffle since the California Gold Rush of 49, with prospectors flocking from all over the country to state claims. Mining camps evolved into prosperous cities like Virginia City and Gold Hill, and mining technology saw major advances, such as square timbers set in um, square set timbering and the Washoe silver extraction process. Comstock and his associates had been trying to pan for gold, and in the process were tossing aside mounds of blue mud. When a Mexican miner came through and saw this blue stuff, he about had a heart attack as he recognized it as silver ore. The rush was on. In a little personal note, my mother was doing some genealogical research and ran across a letter by some of my relatives stating that they had sold a gold claim for a uh, yoke of oxen to some guy named Comstock. (laughs) And there it is. June 10, 1898. U.S. Marines invade Cuba in the Spanish-American War and take Guantanamo Bay, which is, to this day, held as a naval base by the U.S. Navy. It has gained notoriety of late as a place to warehouse captives from the Middle East since they are at a U.S. base but not covered by U.S. civil law. This was also one of the first offensive actions by the U.S. in the Caribbean against Spain in that conflict, having already attacked and sunk the Spanish fleet in Manila. 
This is Hollywood. Sporting cast of thousands. What else came of my trip to the library? Romance, education, entertainment. First off in our media section on YouTube, on the Great War Channel, right after we finished our last week's episode on Jutland, they uploaded a really nice piece on the Battle of Jutland. So if you haven't listened to our Jutland episodes, which is 44, 54 and 55, I highly re- recommend watching. It's basically a mini documentary on the Battle of Jutland, and it'll give you a visual context for the whole thing. It's really well done. If you've already listened to those our episodes, well, watch it anyway, because it's really well done. I also want to uh, recognize that uh, Admiral Jellicoe's grandson, did uh, a talk on uh, the battle and you know, where he defends his grandfather's uh, reputation. Um, we'll have a link to that as well. Uh, it's uh, it's fascinating to, to hear the, you know, here's his grandson talking about the thing. It's almost like having, you know, Nelson's grandson talk about the Battle of Trafalgar. So anyway, pretty cool stuff. Okay. Yes, definitely. Uh, um, in the pod, world of podcasting, I stumbled across, when I was looking for some fun music for this week, I found a podcast called the Antique Phonograph Music Program. It's from a, a radio station back east. And if your idea of great top 40 type radio shows would include chart breakers more like Al Jolson, less like Justin Bieber, then this show is for <laughs> you. It's my idea of a hot playlist anyway. It's a no frills podcast. It's a guy in a studio with an old Victrola and an Edison cylinder machine and he just spins the shellac and and then makes a little comment and then spins another one so no mp3s it's all just coming out of the horn so that's kind of fun also in the world of podcasting the latest episode of coffee with jeff that'll be number 91 coincidentally is on vinyl tape record clubs and a scam so how's that for coincidental this week jeff tackles the history of recording starting with wax cylinders and shellac the development of the vinyl lp all the way through magnetic tape and cds and as a bonus he covers those 12 albums for a penny clubs plus a little bit on a couple of people who scammed that system for tens of thousands of cds in movies of course if we're going to talk about old cars you got to mention one of my favorite movies which is the great race the great race yeah a 1965 film directed by blake edwards starring tony curtis natalie wood jack lemon peter falk and Keenan Wynn. I mean, everybody's in it. It's wacky fun. A plucky suffragette who is a would-be journalist wants to squeeze her way into an epic cross-country road race. It's not particularly historically uh, accurate, no. but it's a lot of fun, and it's an icon of pop culture in all the right circles. It's streaming in various places, including Amazon, but your library probably has it, and it's worth getting the disc because of the behind-the-scenes featurette. So, yeah, the great race. Push the button, Max. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> or there's just so many just so many great lines from that movie and it always cracks me up every scene natalie wood is in a different elaborate outfit it's like no wonder she's got so many trunks on her car oh, okay uh and anyway at any rate there's so there's a lot of classic films that feature model t's and it would take up a whole show to list them all so you can share your favorites over at our facebook page or on the slack channel my earliest memory of anything with a Model T in it is probably the absent-minded professor. 
which had been out for a few years, thank you very much, when I was a little kid. Yes, Fred McMurray floating yeah. around in his, uh, his Model flubber. 2. Yeah. Yes. On the other hand, my memories are of watching a lot of Laurel and Hardy shorts. Uh, my dad was really into Laurel and Hardy. And, of course, they have all these different mishaps involving Model Ts, uh, which always get wrecked. And it always suggested strongly to me that they were at best rather flimsy, which we'll doubtless get into. I, I don't think they were flimsy. I think they were just cheap. <laughs> well, they were both. Uh, but when you run into something at, you know, 30 miles an hour, well, yeah. um, they don't last long. Well, Gordon, actually, uh, I wanted to let you know that those are very special cars um, because oh. they were they were intentionally built to do that. They were intentionally constructed so that they would fold up and actually run. There's a famous scene where a Model T got run, uh, crushed between two uh, streetcars. Yes. And so they specially engineered that car so that it was oh actually goodness. a drivable car. I'll be um, darn. Folded in half. <laughs> I, oh I remember that word. scene. I remember it yeah, well. Yeah, yeah. So that they they did a lot of work with them. And my my favorite one for those is the one where it gets hit and the entire car flies apart. Yes, <laughs> exactly. But yeah, there's there's some scholarship actually been done on those cars uh, as as a movie prop and and how wow. they were used in the movie. So it's okay. kind of a fun thing. I've heard of breakaway furniture, but never a breakaway car. Well, and yeah. there's there's also the scene where the they get hit or it hits something and the wheels are now off camber and it goes go, whoa, 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 right whoa, right. Wow. I, I figured they made that one. They must but. have had some brilliant mechanics working on those things. Yeah, they did. And they, they, they had a lot of fun with them. And, and a lot of people remember those images, actually. And, and like I said, there's been some scholarship about them, huh. about the cars. So. Who oh, knew? Cool. Well, if you'd like to learn more about one of these topics, you could pick up something like Horatio's Drive by Dayton Duncan and Ken Burns. It's the true tale of a Vermont doctor who bet $50 that he could drive his auto from San Francisco to New York City. In 1903, when there were maybe 150 total miles of paved road in the whole country, History Files listeners can pick up this book as a free audio download with a free 30-day trial for new subscribers by going to www.audibletrial.com slash historyfiles. With over 180,000 titles to choose from across all genres, you're going to find something you love, including Drive, Henry Ford, George Selden, and The Race to Invent the Auto Age by Lawrence Goldstone. History lives again. All right, so as I mentioned earlier, our special guest today is Dr. Morgan Blanchard, uh, a very good friend of mine. We've known each other for, what, what do we think, about 30 years or something like yeah, that? Yeah, I think, yeah, about that. At least. <laughs> And um, we've done a lot of crazy things together from, uh, you know, just cowboy action shooting to riding across the Colorado range, um, sometimes at a faster gate than we intended. Yeah. Uh, we <laughs> uh, just a lot of crazy uh, stuff. And <clears throat> Morgan has had the benefit or curse, whichever you want to look at it, of being raised by a parent who is really into a lot of really neat mechanical stuff, especially cars. And some of that rubbed off. Actually, a lot of the good stuff rubbed off. And you've got uh, this rather deep interest in Model Ts. 
Yeah, I, I do. It, it's um, uh, we'll, we'll get into why later, but there, there's such a fascinating card, such a major part of American history um, that uh, if, if you really want to understand how we got to be a car culture today, you really need to be thinking about what the Model T did to the, to the United States. Absolutely. So according to what I've been looking at, um, the first automobile, as it were, was uh, by Benz in like the 1880s. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, Olds came up with something some a few years later. Uh, but also Henry Ford himself, we call it a quadricycle. Uh, the quadricycle, the famous quadricycle. And Top, yeah, that's in our news headlines today. Yes, and <clears throat> the quadricycle uh, was just, well, it was a contraption. But, you know, it was the, the beginning of something great. Yeah, it was, you know, there, there was a whole kind of, the idea of having a road-going machine was an old one. They, they, had, uh, they had a number of steam tractors, that, uh, road tractors that they built in Europe over time. And, and um, uh, it was, they were successful, but they were huge. And um, steam is an external combustion engine. And so you, you have a fire that heats water to steam, and then you run that through the steam engine and you drive it. So they're very, very large, and they can also explode. <laughs> yeah, yeah. There was one that exploded at a uh, uh, some state fair a few years ago, in fact. Yeah, yeah. And so they, they were around, but, uh, but uh, you know, the, the concept of the internal combustion engine, um, that's really where, you know, the automobile really gets going. Although I do have to say that, um, in the early days, there was a real debate about what the preferred method of uh, motivation would be. There were um, there were steam cars like the Stanley and others, mm-hmm. um, very effective, very powerful, very fast. As, as a matter of fact, um, there were uh, electric cars that did quite well mm-hmm. uh, because the speeds weren't very high. They weren't going very long distances. Um, there was an early electric car, uh, I believe it was called the Baker, but I may be wrong, It that was uh, manufactured and it was sold uh, primarily to women because you didn't have to start it up. It wasn't going to backfire and break your arm. Or it wasn't right. going to... Oh, the cranking thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so, and then there was the inner combustion engine and, and the inner combustion engine offers the benefits, but but uh, just like we're worried today about hydrogen cars exploding, people thought the same thing about gasoline that that was a very dangerous thing to have you were riding around on a tank of fire essentially um that could kill you if you got into an accident well so there, there was is, a lot of debate yeah um so let's see as far as the internal combustion engine though uh, goes <clears throat> that's also a product of like the 1870s 80s when they're working on those right and obviously, by the late 80s, they had at least something that was worthwhile. But really, it comes into its own after about 1900. That's about right. The, uh, and the, the thing about it is is that um, all those early cars, they're very experimental and they're kind of one-off. Um, yeah. And they were very expensive. Um, they, they weren't something that the average person could uh, even dream of affording. Um, and there was all kinds of interesting laws pertaining to them as well. There were a number of states, for example, that, that passed laws that said if you were going to drive your car down the road, you had to have somebody walk in front of it waving a red flag um, <laughs> yes. so that you wouldn't scare the horses or, or, or things like that. And, and, and people weren't really quite sure what to do with these things. They were, they were novelties. They were considered quite dangerous. They uh, also broke down a lot. Well, and a, a, an individual near and dear to our hearts, Christopher Spencer, who is a inventor of renown, uh, he had a steam car he would drive to work uh, in Connecticut uh, until the, the city fathers told him to stop it right? <laughs> because it was scaring the horses. Right. Yeah. And, and, and as Gordon and I are 
as intimated, we're both great fans of Spencer. And when he was in his uh, dotage, when he was quite an old fellow, he uh, uh, built his own cars because he was interested in them. But he also built his own airplane with his son. So, um, <laughs> yeah, and flew in it in, when he was in his 80s. So uh, a remarkable fellow. But, yeah, the, the, this was the sort of thing. Spencer was a very rich fellow, and he could he could um, uh, indulge his interest in automobiles. Right, and Spencer uh, was an inventor of the Spencer carbine. It was uh, one of the guns that won the Civil War. And he invented the pump shotgun. Yes, and actually he got, made most of his money from a company called Billings and Spencer, which had the patents for automatic screw-making machines. That's right, because he really he was a machinist first and foremost. Yes, yes, absolutely. And, and, and so the, the, the guns were kind of a sideline as well. He made some money on it, but really it was a designer of machinery that he made a lot of money. Yeah, so Henry Ford... Um, interesting guy. I guess his first company, the Henry Ford Company, uh, was what, 1903? Yeah. And he, well, the Ford is actually he came quite late. Um, he'd been a kind of a mechanic, and uh, where he got into cars a little bit was uh, he went to work for the Edison Illuminating Company in the 1890s and um, was became kind of a chief engineer for them in, in I think, 93. And he uh, got was interested in this newfangled thing, cars. And um, so he started making enough money working for Edison that he could indulge this passion. And Edison thought this was an interesting thing. And so he started doing this. And that's where he came up with the quadricycle. Okay. The thing you got to remember is, um, you know, this is the early days of the technology. There was nothing in car. People steered wheels, some wheels on the left, some people had wheels on the right. Um, some, some of them were by levers, some of them steered by levers. How it worked was totally up for grabs. Not to mention the fact that it doesn't have a gas pedal. Right. right. The 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 gas the, the gas is on a lever that's on the steering column, and yeah. then you have to, you have spark advance, which is on the steering column, mm. and then you have one pedal that's high low, one pedal that's reverse, and one pedal that's the brake. Yeah. And <laughs> there's no real free neutral in it. You have to nope. put the handbrake in a certain place to get it even anywhere close to neutral, so you can't really push it. Um, yeah, it's a very complicated thing. One of my favorite uh, things about this is if you ever really want to learn how to, to drive a Model T Ford, um, there's a great uh, scene in the book East of Eden where the family purchases a new Ford car and the Ford man, as they were known back then, delivers the car and explains to them how to drive a Model T Ford. Really? And it's, oh, it's actually perfect. Yeah, if you actually follow what he tells you to do in this, in, in this section of East of Eden, you can drive a Model T. This is the original film? No, it's the, the it's the book. It's, oh, oh, in the no, book. It's the original oh, book, sorry. yeah. Um, and uh, uh, Steinbeck actually really spells out exactly, you know, what you would do. Oh, awesome. He would know. Yeah. He would know, exactly, because <laughs> he probably, like so many people of his generation, grew up or learned to drive a Model T. I remember my father telling me about his father, who bought a Model T for $5, drove it hard for five years, and sold it for $5. <laughs> right, and that's not an uncommon story, as a matter of fact. Um, you know, and total production is a little hazy, um, but it was more than 15 million Ford's produced worldwide. And they had factories in multiple factories in Europe, Canada, multiple factories in the United States. Um, they had factories. And so they were producing a remarkable number of cars in the standard of what a car should be. And, and what I find fascinating about that was this is the standard that it is now. And so at some point there was a shit what standard it had around, you know, 15 million models. Out on the if you look at the the breakdown of what they cost, they started out super expensive. I mean, they were really expensive for the time. And well, then they the were... price dropped way, way. It got to the point where it was like, you know, $1,000 in today's money would buy you a car or less. $500 right. in today's money would buy you a car because they got it... down to like 300 and something dollars at one point. 
it depended on the models. That's true. And but even in the beginning, the when the Ford first came out, it was a fraction of what a car from somebody else would right. cost. And so yes, it was a bit more expensive, but um, but it it made cars available to the American public. I mean, prior to that, it was you know think of, it would be like you trying to buy a Maserati or something. It just it was so much money that nobody normally would have that. You had to be a very wealthy person in order. to to have an automobile. Well, yeah, and you know, it's almost as like with the early days of uh, computers, you had the big IBM, uh, you know, these huge room-sized machines that a corporation could own, but no person was ever going to have one of those. Right. And then go. I'm just on Wikipedia, and in 1909, when the first ones came out, the runabout was eight hundred fifty dollars, and in 1915, that same model was. Uh, 390. Right. So it was like, okay, we're making these. We got it handled. We got the production thing down. I guess. I well, guess their capital expenses have been paid. Yeah. Off. Right. Well, the other thing too is that most people don't quite understand that Ford Ford is is well known for being uh, sort of the father of of the assembly line. Yes. But in fact, uh, he wasn't. the The assembly line was actually invented um, by Chicago meatpackers. Only it wasn't an assembly line. It was a disassembly line. Yes, I guess it would have been. Yeah, and so it, he, there was some study about that, but he didn't start out using that. Um, it, that came a little bit later, oh. and so they started doing production on the Model T, and and the demand got really high. And so they they it wasn't really until they got to the big River Rouge plant when they built that, which is this massive plant in Detroit, um, that they really fully automated it to the point where uh, essentially raw materials came in one end and cars came out the other, hmm. and. Ford was fascinating in that way because he was one of the guys who really recognized the value of having an integrated production line. Um, so, for example, there's a there's a, a film about something called Fordlandia where where Ford went into South America, Central America, and was established a giant system for producing rubber. And because they used so much rubber that if they could produce their own, it would be the money. And he did for all kinds of things. So they were selling steel. They were making tires. I mean, they were getting rid of tires. Early on, they actually used Firestone, Harvey Firestone, uh, produced tires. For but they were making this effort to own all of the phases of production okay. for the Ford automobile to make money. Very much like Carnegie had, Absolutely, yeah. had pioneered. Yeah, uh, whatever they call that, not stacked, but vertical stacking or whatever of stuff. Um, well, there's there's some another funny one about that is actually um, – uh, they, um, it's the Kingsford charcoal. Yes. Everybody buys Kingsford charcoal. Well, Kingsford charcoal came about as a way to sell the wood waste from the production of Ford cars. Oh, there you go. And so Ford looked at that as being something they were having to get rid of and how could we make money off of this? And so they went into the charcoal business. And so it survives today as a, as a spinoff of that. So. so with all the production all over the world, I guess, I guess that would mean that Ford Motor Company was, in fact, a fairly early uh, international corporation. Yeah. Yeah, very much so. And, and in some ways, it's an interesting story because um, you would think that, that uh, the company, in order to do that, would be really uh, serious about their accounting <laughs> yeah, but in fact, Ford hated accounting. Uh -huh. He was kind of an odd cat, and and at one point, at least, uh, the Ford Motor Company um, didn't actually pay their bills by adding them up. What they did is they calculated the cost of uh, the costs for production of cars by weighing the bills. <laughs> yeah. So what they did is they, they they took a whole bunch of bills, put you know got like here's ten pounds of bills, and they added them up 
in different 10-pound stacks over and over and over again until they figured out what the average rate for 10 pounds of bills was. And that's what they, how they calculated what the costs were. <laughs> the bills still got paid, but they weren't doing an accounting <laughs> in quite the same way as anybody else. That's interesting. Okay, you can't make this stuff up. I, and, and that seemed to work out. Everybody was happy. Well, Ford made a lot of money. <laughs> That's true. And uh, there's the whole other interesting side about that was is that Ford was also, um, because of the amount of money that he's making, and, and frankly also too because of the level of turnover that he was having in, in the company, um, he was the first company, he, he established a $5 a day wage, mm-hmm. which was remarkable. It was like double what anybody else was paying, and everybody told him he would go broke. Um, but... Uh, there were some catches to it, but the idea essentially was that um, these people were working really long hours, and especially on the assembly line where things were moving very quickly, um, it was difficult to keep people that would that would survive for long periods of time working in that environment. And so he thought that by having that higher wage, he would uh, encourage people to stay around. But the second thing was, is what most people don't know, is that um, in order to get the $5 wage, you had to meet the expectations of the Ford Motor Company and how you lived. And there was a whole department at Ford where they had sort of like social workers that would go out to the workers' houses. And there was a published book, believe it or not, that established what the standards of a Ford family were. And so it's it had pictures of you know a living room of a Ford family and a living room of a family that was not a Ford family. And basically, if they didn't think that you were living a... Uh, an upright middle class life on this on 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 this wage they they wouldn't give it to you you wouldn't get the five dollars that you would get a lower wage well, I guess and so it was actually a social experiment on Ford's part to try to make people improve when I put that in in, in parentheses <laughs> yeah. or and and two was it was it also you are an ambassador for this company you must represent yeah. as well kind of thing Ford always had a very uh, he he was a very socially active person, or he, he had a lot of social goals. For example, he was he really hated uh, alcohol, right? Um, and so he was very anti-alcohol. Um, and unfortunately, he was also virulently anti-Semitic. Um, but that didn't really it didn't play much of a role in the Ford production. In other words, he didn't really care who worked for him. They were they hired uh, they hired African Americans early. They hired people from all over the world. Um, but in his personal life. Um, he was always trying to sort of engineer society to a certain extent. He was also a very strong pacifist. Yes, he was, especially in World War I. Um, uh, unfortunately, uh, after World War I, uh, he, I think he really let his anti-Semitism go a little bit, and um, uh, he published some things that were quite virulently anti-Semitic. And as a matter of fact, there's uh, uh, Adolf Hitler... Uh, had a picture of Henry Ford on his wall. Right. Screed uh, so, comes to mind. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And Ford also owned, uh, you know, he he also had a um, a magazine that he that he essentially forced all of the Ford dealers to carry <laughs> and sell. Yeah. Um, and that was part of the deal of being a dealer. And so it was this, um, it was a, this magazine that reached a lot of readers and it, it carried a lot of uh, pretty vile stuff in, in the, in our, the way we look at it now. And, and certainly it was pretty bad then. Um, but when World War II came along, um, I think he really kind of saw the light and, and uh, at least publicly saw the light and, and apologized for that and, 
and uh, moved on. But uh, and of course, as many folks may know or may not know, is Ford played a massive role in World War II. Um, they built a, a, an immense factory that was turning out B-24 bombers right. and produced all kinds of other things. So Ford was a major major player in in the production that that arguably played a great role in winning World War II. And that, yeah, that was one of the things I did want to mention is that the the uh, B-24 Liberator was a Ford product. Right. Yeah, and turned out on an assembly line. It was uh, I believe it was the factory in the world at the time. It was when it was yeah. All under one roof anyway. Now, as I recall, and I'm honest, um, that during World War One, Ford would happily sell his Model Ts, but only to be ambulances. I don't know if that's really true. I've not heard that. Okay. Um, it, it could be. I know certainly a number of them did get sold as ambulances, um, but they do show up in some pretty peculiar places. I've seen photos of them, for example, you know, in uh, in what's now Iraq. Mm -hmm. um, you know, when they were being driven along, and different armies would pick them up for different reasons. And, and uh, But they did produce them. Uh, the other wrinkle, too, is that there was a Ford plant in Germany when the war started. Uh, so, yes. Yeah, so, um, and there was in World War II. That was an well. Opel? Oh. Opel was a, yeah, was a Ford subsidiary. Yeah. Yeah. Um, speaking of the World War One stuff, I, I found a great photo, which maybe we can put on our show notes, of uh, a Model T being uh, driven by British soldiers in Palestine. And right. they've got a Lewis gun mounted on it. <laughs> yeah, you don't really think of the multi-Ford gun. <laughs> no. <laughs> no, but uh, obviously they were pretty popular. I don't know. Well, they could hardy is the thing. Is that they, they're flimsy. Um, they feel flimsy to us, certainly, they, but they were well engineered for what they were. Well, they're certainly light enough to pick up and move across things. That's true. Yeah, that's true. So with your own personal journey here, uh, you have one. Yes, yes, I've had one for years um, in pieces. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> Gordon and I go back long enough. I had a store in Sparks, Nevada for a while. For a long time, I had all the parts hung from the rafter. And so we jokingly referred to it as the Ford of Damocles because we were never sure when when yeah. some part was going to fall off a nail and kill you. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah. So, yes, I, I, I have a 1926 um, uh, Model T uh, on its way to being a speedster. And it was actually mine as a Canadian made car. Oh, yes. So, yeah, so it says Ford of Canada on the engine block. So for those in our audience who don't know, explain what a speedster is. Well, it actually kind of comes back from what Gordon was saying, that, you know, uh, that uh, was your grandfather who got one for $5 and drove it and sold it for $5. Um, with 15 million Model T Fords produced, um, there were a lot of them around. And the other thing about them is that they weren't built to the quite quite the same standards we are today. Um, and so some of the parts on them would wear quite quickly. So a lot of people would buy one, drive it for a couple of years, and then put it in the barn and buy another one. So young men, of course, uh, would get a hold of these things for cleaning out the barn or for $5. And if you give a car to a young man, the first thing he's going to do is to see how fast he can make it go. <laughs> Yeah, and so one of the one of the great ways to do that was to take everything off the car, and so um, guys would take the body off, take everything off, put the firewall, and and uh, usually they'd leave the windshield off, and so you're basically you're sitting on a on a seat on top of the gas tank, and that's it. <laughs> and so then when I'm, I'm dubious happened, about the safety of this arrangement. <laughs> Oh, <laughs> it was, don't be dubious. It was awful. <laughs> um, uh, have, the, the, I almost crashed a speedster a while back once, and I can tell you that it was awful. Oh, um, yeah. That's so, how many people can say they've done that. 
no, no. It's a good thing, actually. So, so what happened was once you got a few guys that had these things, then uh, at county fairs, they a lot of the county fairs at that time, uh, the big thing was harness racing, and so they had they had harness racing tracks, and so people at the county fairs thought they could make a little bit of money by holding races between the lunatics with their stripped down. Uh, flivers, and they uh, started doing this, and then there started to be a little bit of money in this, and so people actually started to produce uh, speed parts for Model Ts, and that's a those are two words that don't normally go together, speed parts and Model T. But um, a number of companies did do it. Um, Arthur and Lewis Chevrolet, for example, after right. they sold or, or left Chevrolet, made a company called Frontenac Motor Company, and they produced um, overhead setups for the Model T, um, single and double cam. Um, there were companies that made special cranks. Uh, there were uh, totally different ignition systems. It got to be quite a big thing. Uh, so there were guys that actually went around in the early days and raced Model Ts to make money at, at fairs. Um, they raced in the Indianapolis 500 several years. Um, they don't look like Model Ts, but they had Model T engines and highly modified. And, and, and in those states, at, at the uh, Indy 500, some of those would go over 100 miles an hour on the straightaway. Um, a fellow, yeah, and a Model T, you know, like that. <laughs> no brakes. Um, there's a guy by the name of Seth Bullock who won the Pikes Peak Hill Climb in a Model mm-hmm. T Ford with a Rajo head. Uh, on it, very stripped down single seater Model T, and so those were the kind of race cars. But the Speedster comes in where um, think of it as the hot rod, right? It's the guy, young guy or older guy. Most of them were either mechanics or young men, and they would strip these things down and make them as fast as they could make them as kind of the cool, quick car that they could, you know, tear around. Well, with. heck yeah. So um, now speaking of the racing, as I recall, you mentioned that a lot of the early tracks were wood. Oh, there were some. Yeah, there were some that were wood tracks. Board track racing was a big thing in the United States, and it kind of came out of. Um, there was a whole bicycle racing thing on board tracks early, and then um, uh, they made these kind of almost like they like would call them velodromes now, but they made them bigger so that they could take cars and motorcycles. And um, as you pointed out, um, frequently these um, these board track cars didn't have any brakes at all. Yes. And so, yeah, they'd go tearing around these tracks. And it, it was quite a scene, I guess. Very dangerous, though, because if, la- if you lost control of the car, they had a tendency to, like, go up the banking and then launch off the top of the banking. Oops. Yeah, because there weren't any guardrails or anything. And so people would crash and go flying out over the, you know, 50, 60 feet in the air in a Model T and crash into the parking lot what? and killing everybody. <laughs> yeah, boy, talk about the flaming tire into the crowd. Oh, yeah, and, and there were a lot of cases like that where, where, where people were killed. Um, and they did it in kind of ridiculous places. Um, I think we were talking a little while back, there was a race that I, I found out that was held at, as part of the big World Exposition in San Francisco where they laid down boards, but it rained so much that that the boards were floating on top of the water. Oh, my word. Yeah, so when the cars went hurtling by, the the weight of the car would slam that down, and so geysers of water would shoot up between the boards. And you would think that this would, you know, if you think about it, it's, it, 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 as the car went, it was continually doing this. So you were driving through this just torrent of water shooting up out of the... Oh, my word. You can't see. Exactly. Exactly. But that didn't seem to slow them down. (laughs) At least... (laughs) Not at the moment. Yeah, is there, I don't suppose there's any footage of this anywhere. No, there there are some photographs of of the races, um, but not particularly that. But it was a it was a it was a noteworthy event. And and frankly, when you get into the history of early racing, it's really deadly. 
um, people were killed pretty consistently. Um, uh, it, it was it was a very very frightening thing. No seat belts, no body per se, no roll bars. Um, so it made, no helmets. it made flying look actually safe by comparison. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> <laughs> you you might crash, but nobody was likely to run into you. You know, and and, and that can't be said for early car racing. And and uh, you read these stories, and they're, it's just horrific. Uh, it's kind of amazing that people would would do it. But they were, you know, people were really dedicated to this concept of the automobile and 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 developing speed. So um, they did it. Now the the body that you are building. Uh, is rather specialized. Yeah, I'm. <laughs> I've been monkeying with it for years. Um, I'm just to the point where we're starting to do the body, and it's something called a skiff. And a skiff was a, a design that was developed in France in the teens, I think. Um, but they were pretty common in the 20s. But what it is is that the back of the car is made out of wood, and it looks like a like a boat, like a like a rowboat turned around. So the front of the boat is poking out the back, so it's pointy on the back. And a number of cars were done this way. It, it would work uh, well in that San Francisco race. Yeah. Oh, I guess, yeah. I think you might need to... Yeah, I think you need a double ender for that. <laughs> so, but it was a common style, and it was, it was considered uh, quite sporty, and so you can actually see it um, uh, on some very lovely, expensive cars. Um, uh, there are a number of Rolls Royces that were made yes. uh, as skiff bodies. Some of them later on, um, the original ones were actually made out of, out of wood, mahogany, and that's what I'm making mine out of, but uh, later on, they made them out of metal as well, but it's a style that... that uh, that uh, was quite popular in the day and, and it's quite lovely. Oh, neat. Okay, so everybody wants to know what what kind of car is the car in Chitty Chitty Bang Bang? What's that based on? I have no idea. That's an English car. Oh, okay. Um, Some yeah, kind of touring car. Actually, yeah, it's actually there's a history to that car, and if you if you look it up online, there's actually quite a bit of scholarship that's gone into that hmm. car because it's a it's a well known movie car. But Peter but, Jackson uh, owns it was there. yeah that's right he, yeah he picked it up like <laughs> last year or the year. Oh, I didn't oh, yeah, know he that. has some yeah. some money to blow, and that he picked up the Chitty Chitty Bang Bang car. Well, the the thing about what's so interesting, actually, um, and in part it's because of Henry Ford, is the automotive industry in Europe versus the automotive industry in the United States it has a totally different arc, um, because so many of the European cars are very custom. And so, for example, um, Rolls-Royce. Everybody knows Rolls-Royce. Well, for most of the years that Rolls-Royce was in production, Rolls-Royce did not produce bodies. When you purchased a Rolls-Royce, you purchased a chassis. So you, it was everything from the firewall forward, essentially. Um, and then you had that delivered to a coach builder. And so the coach builder would make up the car any way you oh. wanted it. And so there was no standard model, per se, um, for a Rolls-Royce. And so... Uh, later on, they they did go into that, but a little bit more, or at least they would go with. There were some standard models that they would go to a specific coach builder to produce, but you could get pretty much whatever you wanted, so this- and that was not the model that that Henry Ford mm-hmm. and others in the United States did. Because what if you're trying to produce a car for the masses, you need to produce it as cheaply as possible and have a lot of uniformity. Yeah. So these these custom cars that you're getting from a coach builder is this all through like the 20s and into the 30s? Yeah, in the, even into the oh 40s. wow, yeah. So that when uh, certainly on the nice cars. So so for example, one of my favorite cars is are the are the big Bentleys yes. of the twenties, and so everybody talks about the Vandenplas body for the Bentley, and that's because Vandenplas was a was the company that built that. But you could have a by all kinds. Now is all your dad's restoration of a Bentley, right? Uh, he, you know, when I was a kid, we had a nineteen uh, Rolls Royce twenty twenty five. Oh. That was the that was the family oh. car. <laughs> <laughs> so you come by this uh, pretty pretty honestly. 
Well, it was a funny thing because everybody thinks highly of a Rolls Royce, and they're wonderful cars. Um, but actually, one of the least expensive, very nice classic cars to buy these days is a 30s Rolls Royce because they were so well built and they were so highly regarded that nobody got rid of them. And so a lot of them survived. Oh, good. And so uh, when my father bought that, he purchased it in England and had it shipped over, and it cost less than a new <laughs> Volkswagen van. <laughs> so What can you yeah, say? He, what can you say, right? It, it, he rebuilt the engine, and then we drove it around for, for, for quite a while. So let's talk for a minute. I mean, we briefly went over this, but let's talk for a minute on the controls of a uh, Model T. You know, you mentioned that in East of Eden, we've got John Steinbeck giving you a pretty good rundown. Well, for our listeners, let's give a pretty good rundown so they don't have to go look up East of Eden. Right. Well, the interesting thing about the Model T is um, it essentially has a uh, it essentially has a uh, automatic transmission. Uh, as a matter of fact, the design for the Model T Ford automatic transmission is essentially the same as all modern automatic transmissions today. And it has to do with a planetary system of mm -hmm. gears inside of it and multiple drums. And how you engage different gears is by holding one of the drums, which engages a different set of, of in the gear train. And so, as a matter of fact, when I was rebuilding my Model T Ford, um, the clutch plates out of a modern Chevy Turbo 350 transmission fit. <coughs> With very small modification, you need to knock a couple of tabs off, but um, they, they fit the Model T Ford clutch. Well, I guess the Chevrolet brothers were building parts for Model yeah, Ts. I, I guess. Well, but the thing is, is that I mean, it was an excellent design, so um, it, it worked really, really well. So um, essentially, a Model T Ford, it, it has. Um, Three, it's a two-speed transmission. You have high and low. Uh, uh, high is direct drive. Low is a reduced gear drive. And so when you, um, when you go to start a Model T or start to drive a Model T, the um, ignition, or excuse me, the uh, timing is on, on a little lever that comes out of, the, out of the steering wheel, and so is the throttle. So once you get it started, which you can either do by um, later cars after 1925, I believe, have uh, starters. Uh, actually, it might be a little earlier, but they have a, an electric starter. Um, earlier cars, and even some later cars where they didn't want to pay for the starter, um, you have to actually start them by hand. So you would turn on the magneto or turn on the, um, uh, the magneto switch. You would set your timing and your gas the right way, and there's a little, little um, wire that comes out of the grill that you pull forward that operates the choke so that you can operate the choke from in front of the car. Mm -hmm. So you pull that little choke out, and you spin the handle, and you have to hold the handle very carefully because if it backfires and you're holding it wrong, it can break your thumb. And if it can backfire wrong, even if it doesn't break your thumb, it'll swing back around and it can break your right. arm. Right. Um, but a good Model T Ford actually can, uh, it can start on compression, which is a very interesting thing. Right, yes. That can retain enough compression so that when you turn it on and give it the neutral, put it into neutral in a very interesting way, it'll kick the engine over and cause it to actually start. But that means that everything has to be quite right. So once you get it running, um, one of the other problems is that the clutch has a tendency to drive oil out of the clutch because it's a, it's a wet clutch. And so especially in cold weather, the clutches tend to stick. 
And so there's many old cartoons of people pinned to the barn door by their Model T. <laughs> yes. <laughs> because it's trying to drive over them and you're holding the car back. Um, so, but once, yeah, once you got it going, you had to run around and get into the car. And then um, and you had to go to the passenger side because there wasn't a door yes, on the correct. driver's there's no, side. There's no door on the driver's side, right? Because that, that was quite sensible. Um, that <laughs> was in part because the parking brake is on the left-hand side, right, where you'd want to get through to the, oh, to the right. seat. And so, you, you know, it made sense that if you were going to get out of the car, you wanted to get on the sidewalk anyway. But, but, yeah, that's how it worked. And since there's no gear shift in the middle, there didn't matter. Right, you could just climb right over, and they're very small cars too. I mean, oh, man. the the room is quite quite. Small. Yeah, I don't think the two of us could sit in the front seats with our shoulders. No, we're yeah. not not you two guys. <laughs> right, we're we're uh, we're too big. I have this memory of a Hitchcock film. It's an older Hitchcock film. It's a black and white. It's one of his earlier ones. It's not a super pop, you know, well-known one like Vertigo or something. But a car features prominently in it, and I can't remember. It's a long time ago that I saw it. I can't remember if it's a T, but it's another one of those falsely accused of a crime stories. And so the, the protagonist and and this gal are on the run, and her car, I think it might be a T, but she's got a funny thing where she has to take a piece of string on and hold on to that lever coming off of the steering column to start the car because if she doesn't have it tied down and it might be that issue where if you if you don't have this thing tied down when you start it it'll lurch forward or it'll do something anyway and right. and it ends up you know working in her favor but I, I, man I wish I could remember the name of it's a really old one Hitchcock I'll well it's the, the they were an adventure, I can, I can tell you that. But once you got the car running, then the, the pedal on the left is the gear pedal. And so in order to get going, what you do is is uh, advance the throttle on the thing and step on that pedal all the way to the floor. And that puts it to first gear. And once it's up to speed, then you just step off that pedal and it's in high. Oh, okay. So you don't have to drive with your foot on the pedal at all. Those no, no. Skip. You just take it off. And, and you'll, they only put it on the pedal when, you're, when you want to be in low. And then uh, the middle pedal is reverse, and then um, the one on the right is brake. Okay. And so the brakes are actually in the transmission. They're not on the wheels. And so um, over time, the bands can wear. That There's a lining on the inside of the bands that hold the drums. And so when those wear, then you don't have much anymore <laughs> yeah. yeah that's not good <laughs> yeah no and and so one of the old things if you actually if you're ever in a model t and you can't make it stop what you do is you step on all the pedals at once. <laughs> it's a, I, I and recall. just 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 stall it, it yeah i recall it kills it, it called yeah. a bone jarring stop Right, but you will stop. It's hard on the car, but but you will stop. And there's the other thing too is because of the band where um and also because of where they put the fuel tanks. Uh, if you were going up a hill, the fuel tank is in, is behind the engine. And so when the fuel gets a little bit low, um, it, it doesn't have a fuel pump. It just has gravity feed. And so the cars would stall out going up hills if you were, if you were less than a full tank of gas. But also, you tended to wear the, the low gear band much more than you did the reverse band. And so the secret to getting up hills was to turn around and go, go up backwards. backwards yes. Yeah, because the fuel tank was higher, so you'd always get fuel, and then you were usually on a band that wasn't as bad. Well, my dad's uncle Charlie, when he was running Old Crow into Utah, um, <laughs> he told me that he had to run his Model T up backwards up the grades. Who's Old Crow? Right. Oh, Old Crow Whiskey, yes. <laughs> um, yeah. yeah, and said for medicinal purposes, of course. 
So, yeah. Right. Anyway, so it's, it's a, got a long and um, honored history of having to go uphill backwards. But, that, I mean, that's common. Yeah. That, that was pretty standard uh, that if you wanted to go up a steep hill, you had to pretty much get up backwards. There was, there was a great story by one of the early Ford salesmen, and he was trying to buy a car, and he lived at the top of a very steep hill, and the guy said, well, I'll buy the car if you get up the hill. And uh, all, the uh, the reverse is actually a little bit lower than than, than uh, first gear, but um, so the salesman knew that the car couldn't make up the hill in first gear, and so he said, the Ford car's so good, I can do that backwards, <laughs> and he backed up the hill. <laughs> now that's salesmanship. And made the sale, and yeah, so that's that's an old. Story. Well, it's also interesting that certainly in the twenties, in the teens and twenties, if you were driving down one of these standard-sized roads, which were not very wide, uh, going you know up a grade or down a grade, the person on the uphill, if you met two cars met, the guy going uphill, the guy going downhill, had to back up until the other could pass. Right, and I, that probably has to do with how dangerous backing downhill. Oh, is. I'm sure it is, but it also shows that it was much. It was pretty easy to back up. Yeah, absolutely. And and the thing about them is, is that Ford had a very interesting idea that you know the the Ford cars are designed to drive in very rough conditions. Yes. And the gearing on the steering wheel is set up, and this would be frightening for a modern driver, but but so that. Um, if the wheels got into a ditch or something or into a into a gully or, or somehow were forced to go one way or the other, the steering wheel is geared so that the wheel will just spin in your hands. And the idea was that it would – it was designed that way so that um, nothing in the steering system would break. All right. And so um, – but they they talk about the wheel spinning and the and the spokes of the wheel smacking their yeah. thumbs as it goes by, right? You know, break your thumbs. Um, but it was really this interesting idea where the car was designed so that it was light, but designed so that all the parts worked together to ensure that nothing broke. And and part of that was Ford was actually um, was a pioneer in early use of alloy steels. Oh. And so the like the axles and the frame in a Ford car are made out of chrome vanadium steel, which was a kind of a new oh, steel at the time. But it was very high quality, very flexible, very strong. And so he was able to actually produce this car as light as it was because he was using very high-tech materials. And this also brings to mind the fact that <clears throat> you know these cars used in rough conditions they were used for a lot more than just driving uh, oh yeah there was plenty of photographs of these things being set up to be to run a sawmill for example oh yeah um, mm -hmm. and you have a story about some um, ancestors of yours in Canada uh, I be believe building their own automobile oh yeah my, my great-grandfather um, actually um, was a very mechanical fellow and he was from Canada. And uh, for example, in World War II, he was in charge of the civilian uh, outfit that maintained uh, armor for the for, for the Canadian Army. But um, before that, when he was a young fellow, he actually uh, designed and built his own engine and made a tractor. And so there's a in the family there's a copy of a newspaper article that says local man builds automobile for farm work. <laughs> <laughs> but he built every part of I it. I love that. And, and but you. But you're right about the Model T because um, long after they were being used for, you know, as cars, uh, they were while they were being used for cars, they they had all kinds of interesting uses. Um, they made special wheels that go on them to be used as tractors. They made kits that would convert them to four wheel drive. They made kits that would convert them to snow machines. Mm -hmm. um, 
the snowmobile company. Uh, but long after that, as a matter of fact, I just purchased uh, a 1926 Model T engine and transmission that had been still mounted in the front end of the frame, but the frame had been cut off so that it was being used as a power source to run a pump. Oh, there you go. And so a lot of people did this even you know if you didn't just because the you weren't using the car didn't mean that you couldn't still use the engine and so uh you see them used for motive power for a lot of different things on farm as a former friend of mine said if something doesn't have at least 3 lives on the farm it wasn't worth the money you spent on it right right yeah you you almost get the feeling like it, especially in the early years a model t was basically like it was this raw blank slate kit that you bought and a lot of people in rural areas like oh i'm gonna buy that and i have plans for it immediately you're not right. even just an old and one it's like the first thing they were going to do is turn it into some cool piece of farm machinery yeah well there and there was also a massive massive industry for aftermarket parts for the model t because the model t came pretty stripped down and so uh, accessories for the Model T are legion. Um, there's people that, believe it or not, you know, have collections of hundreds of Model T Ford water pumps because there were hundreds of different companies that made them. Hmm. And so as a kind of collecting thing, um, did Ford even you make, get into Did these. Ford even make a water pump on it? It didn't come right, with exactly. one. Oh. Um, and Ford didn't think it needed one. But a lot of people did, and so there were companies that sprung up to make aftermarket bolt-on water huh. pumps that would circulate the water through the radiator and the engine faster. And so Ford was actually very much against this. He thought the Model T Ford was perfect, and the only, to the best of my knowledge, the only accessory that he would allow Ford dealers to install on a Model T was the Ruxtel two-speed rear end. And he thought that was a pretty much okay idea because it doubled the number of gears that you, that mm -hmm. you could have. It was a, like a split rear end. Uh, anybody who's driven a big truck understands that's two gears in the in the rear end. And so, but everything else that was all aftermarket, and you could buy it from pretty much anything from you know a Rajo overhead valve system to a a bud vase to go inside your <laughs> your your car. I mean, you have to have a bud may, vase in your car. You do. I think that's <laughs> that's true. So. But it was a huge industry for a long time. Wow. Well, this is awesome. We're, we're coming up on our hour time limit for, for this episode. And I know you guys could go on for ages about this. We're going to have to follow up on Model T stuff later on and see how your progress is coming on your Speedster. And... Slowly. Yeah. I got one last question. Oh, okay. So when did what we would consider the modern controls mm. uh, for an automobile start becoming common? Good gracious. Um, in the 20s, there were some cars that started to use that. I've forgotten. There, there's one particular car that kind of set the standard like for that. Like gas um, pedal but really, yeah, where the gas pedal is, the fact you have a gas pedal, that it's got a clutch and you've got a brake mm -hmm. pedal. Um, and so that you no longer have the, you no longer have the levers. Um, the, the, the timing one goes out a little later because it took a little while for them to, to have a uh, an automatically controlled timing advance and a distributor. But um, really for Ford, everything changes when they go to the Model A in 1920. Right, because that's basically a modern car. Yeah, exactly. And, and what they were recognizing was that the model for what a car was had really altered. And the Model A essentially is if you sit down and tally up all of the problems that you can have with a Model T and you fix them, what you end up with is a model. And isn't that why he started over at the beginning of the alphabet? He was like, no, we're not going to do another sequential after the D. We're, we've, we've, this is a whole new beginning. 
Yeah, to a certain extent. The, the funny thing is is that Henry Ford absolutely hated the Model A, at least when oh. it was under design, because he thought the Model T was mm-hmm. perfect. And so his son, Edsel Ford, um, and others in the company were actually working to get this design, and he resisted it heartily. Oh. Um, and was not happy about this at all. But it, it, by the time that that had come on, the sales had really declined pretty seriously because people like the Dodge Brothers and Chevrolet were producing cars for the masses that had better design better operation that kind of thing that they they were just better built cars at that time because you know you have a car that was designed first released in 1909 and had not mechanically changed much except for the addition of a of a starter until 1927 so you're looking at a pretty old technology by the time yeah. it goes out well if you if i'm a fan of old monster movies and one of my favorites is the giant gila monster and that is full of old cars and the protagonist is a is a mechanic and he's got and, it, and it's all these kids driving hot rods where they've taken old tees and rotted them out and turned them into these little you know little roadster kinds of things and he, there's a there's an old character in the movie who's original owner you know of a model t and they're trying to basic trying to buy it from him i'll give you two hundred dollars for that oh well i paid 500 for it back in whatever and and let, you know, a couple of years ago, it was only worth about a hundred bucks. When it gets back up to being worth five hundred, I'll talk to you again. <laughs> <laughs> worth five dollars, Bob. Yeah, yeah. Just, but but like you know, but like you say, they were they worked, they were sturdy, they were cool. So even in the fifties, kids are still making hot rods out of these things. Yeah. Well, and the thing about the Model T is that any farm kid going could fix mm-hmm. one, and you can take a Model T Ford apart entirely with the toolkit that came with it. And so there's an argument that part of the reason why we were so uh, so mechanically capable by the time World War II came along, and in World War I as well, but really World War II, is that so many people had operated, taken these cars apart, and kept them running for so long that people understood mechanics and electronics and all those kinds of things. The, the basics of internal combustion um, really don't change much, no matter which size the engine is. And so, so many people got their mechanical start with... A Model T Ford. Yes. And in fact, even by 1920, it said that everybody in the United States who wanted to ride in an automobile pretty much had. Right. You know, and wow. anybody who wanted to buy one pretty much could. Right. And of course, that leads, which we don't have time to talk about today, to this total alteration in the landscape of the United Absolutely. States. Absolutely. It leads to inter- highways and motels and roadside restaurants and all these things that, that we just didn't have before because people weren't moving around in quite that way. So it, it, the, the effect of the automobile, the Model T in particular, on American culture is just astronomical. Absolutely. It's, it's impossible to underestimate, or pardon me, overestimate uh, how how much effect that has had but uh that ought to wrap it up for this um this episode yeah when the power gets thick just hit it with a brick and the little fog will ramble right along So if you enjoy this show, be sure to check out some of the other programs over at SciCon, such as our daily tech news roundup, Geek Days, or the illuminating Sunday morning coffee with Jeff, which we mentioned previously. I'm getting a kick out of the new show, Take 5, where Anthony Hobday and Jack Marshall talk for five minutes about a random topic chosen by a listener. So far, they've covered things like voting and paper clips and actually made it all quite entertaining so good job guys show notes for this episode can be found at scicon.fm slash thf5 
and many of our episodes have supplemental entries over at Gordon's History Ramblings blog, and this one will be one of them. Contact us with your questions or comments at historyfileshow at gmail.com. And thanks so much to our reposters and retweeters and all our listeners. We wouldn't be able to do this without your support. And uh, that's about it. That's about it. All right. Well, join us again next week for another exciting episode of The History Files. The History Files is brought to you by Bad Cat Productions, a proud member of the Psycon Podcast Network. For show notes, more episodes, or to join the conversation on Slack, visit us at psycon.fm slash THF. We also invite you to consider supporting this and our other fine shows by visiting our Patreon page at patreon.com slash psycon, where a pledge of even $1 a month will help keep us on the air. Bad cat. Meow.